0: Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 1 12 a.m. on a Sunday night. Today was the fifth week of our Genesis series. Uh, we were having an awesome time, uh, essentially like going to college. It, it feels like uh, Professor Hannah is uh, just kind of giving us the goods on genesis and the historical background and what some of the stuff means and what it doesn't mean and it's been really cool and i just want to say thank you to everyone who's been attending uh it's our first series we've ever done and I-, I wasn't sure how the crowds would be but it's been great people have been watching online and uh if you are paying attention to what we're doing uh from the bottom of our hearts thank you so much it, it means the world to know that because of you different exists and we think it is important that different exists because there's not a lot of churches out there doing what we're doing. So huge thank you, you rock. Okay, um, this week, small groups start. We have a, a Zoom group on Monday night, Tampa group on Tuesday night, St. Pete group on Wednesday night. Uh, it's pretty exciting. We've this is like our third like kind of uh, semester, if you will. Um, third time doing it and we've like grown the small groups have grown like we've kind of had our little like core group that has been doing it but I keep seeing these emails coming in of people that are interested in joining group and that's so cool so thank you so much for being a part of that as well Uh, if you want to jump in go to diff.church and then click on groups and just let us know and we will reach out to you with all the information that you need all right, I don't think we have any announcements tonight. Before we jump into Hannah, I figured we would play one song. Uh, by the time you hear this, I will be working on a video for this song as well. So keep your eye out on our YouTube channel for a video for this song. This is Never Let Me Down by Mosaic. Dog that has never let me down by Mosaic. Uh, our band is awesome. Uh, if you haven't seen them live, you got to come see them. They'll change your life, man. They'll change your life. Okay, let's jump into the fifth week of Genesis. Uh, before Hannah starts talking about Genesis, she has an announcement.
1: It's actually kind of a report. So, if you're new around here, we have an honesty policy. At different church, we just tell you what's going on, no matter what. We're transparent with our finances. We're transparent with everything. So, in June. I became a full-time employee of Different Church instead of working a full-time job separately and this, and also trying to contain Nova. Some of you may have seen her on the way in, uh, who is with me all the time. What a joy. It is a joy, but it's hard. Uh, So last year, because of COVID, we were able to save some money because it didn't cost anything to do church on account of we weren't here. Uh, We just were online for a while. So we saved enough money and we designated it, to. Pay. it was enough to pay for a salary for one employee for half a year. And so our like leap of faith in June was we have that money, we're just going to use it. like, And maybe by December we'll see what happens and it'll be six months and we'll give it a try. And it was terrifying for me, let me tell you, to be like, okay, I'm going to put in my notice. And also the best, most exciting thing I've ever done. Um, and I just want to report that we have not touched that money. We haven't spent a dime of it. It's still in savings. <laughs> um, so we are for this year, money we have brought in and money that has gone out to pay for things like renting space and um, subscription, insurance, all kinds of things we have to pay for as a church and a salary of a person. Um, we are breaking even. Like we're in a thousand dollars of what has brought been come in and what's gone out. If you want to know how much I make, just come ask me after service. I'm happy to tell you. Um, but I when i was running the numbers we just had our third quarter board meeting the other day and i ran them twice and i was like really like n- not only have we not touched that money and we're like breaking even for the year we have added a couple thousand dollars to our savings account <laughs> which you might be like what are you going to do with all that money well Eventually, at some point, we would like to have a permanent space in St. Pete. That doesn't necessarily mean owning a building. It could be some kind of commercial lease. Whereas, you know, at the opera, we love the opera. Like, we love being here. They're, fan- they're fabulous. Um, but we do have to set everything up and tear it down every single Sunday. Um, so that is a job. And eventually, we may not have enough room here. So that is kind of what we're saving for. But also, just so you know, of everything we make, we make, 10% of everything that is donated, off the top, before it goes into our bank account, before it goes into our operating budget, gets put in a separate bank account to go back out into the community. So our last donations were, we donated $1,000 to the Pinellas County Education Fund in their Stuff the Bus campaign to help kids who have a hard time getting the school supplies that they need, have school supplies. And we are gonna make some awesome donations in October. So stay tuned for that. So that is, I don't know, I was really excited. Yes, clap that I can pay my bills. <laughs> the other thing I wanna share with you before we jump into Genesis class, which is the best kind of class because there's no tests you just have to show up, um, is it's Hispanic Heritage Month, and every month we are sharing the name of a person you should know. And this Sunday is this guy. You probably already know who this is, if you're from around here or if you like art. This is Salvador Dali. You can also say Salvador Dali, he's dead. (laughs) Um, But Josiah and I went to the museum one time and there was a elderly volunteer who was adamant that his name was Dali and she said Dali every time and now I can never get that out of my head because I heard it. Um, He was born in Spain in 1904 and he lived until 1989 which also incidentally is the year I was born so that's why I'm so great. Um, (laughs) He is known for his surrealist painting a very pointy mustache, and looking slightly scared in almost all of his photos. This is his most famous work, which you probably recognize with the melting clocks. It's called The Persistence of Memory. He is most well-known for his paintings, but his portfolio also included graphic arts and film and sculpture and design and photography, and he wrote fiction and poetry and essays, and all I have to say is, like, leave some for the rest of us. (laughs) He is truly a genius but the specific reason I wanted to share him today is that we have a museum dedicated to Salvador Dali in St. Pete. Have any of you been? Okay, if you did not raise your hand, you have to go. I'm not just saying this because he's on the screen. Like Josiah and I have been multiple times, and I don't mean just go and walk around and like look at the paintings and leave. They give free tours. They either have them like on, in a little headset that you can wear or they have volunteers who give free tours at, the, at like certain times during the day they will point out things in his paintings that will truly blow your mind, that you will never see just looking at it yourself. At least, maybe I'm not that perceptive, I don't know. <laughs> but we've been multiple times that every time I learn something new and am more amazed by what a genius he is. How lucky are we that we get to have a huge amount of original paintings and artworks from one of the most influential artists of all time in our town? Go to, this, go to the Dali Museum, okay? Now, now it's time for Genesis. Today we are talking about the Tower of Babel and Father Abraham who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna sing the whole song. (laughs) Hopefully that like meant something to you and I'm not the only one who's singing a ridiculous song. We left off last week at like Genesis 10 so now we're going to pick up right where we left off. Um, as always, if you want to do more reading, do more research, you can go look at these two books, The Evolution of Adam and Genesis for Normal People by Pete Enns and Jared Bias. Now if you have been around the Bible, you know that Babyloni, Babylonians, <laughs> the Babylonian empire was the arch nemesis of Israel. and. Genesis and the rest of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible were compiled and written down during the Babylonian exile. So chapter 10 starts with another genealogy, another list of
2: names.
1: (laughs) But before we just skip them, let's pause for a second, okay? Because this genealogy shows the descendants of Noah's three sons spread out to become the various people groups in the world. So the first son of Noah is Japheth. 14 nations descend from him. They occupy parts of Turkey, parts of Greece. They have their own group of languages. The second son is Ham, as we discussed last week. And he, sadly, is the dark ancestor of literally anyone who's ever going to give the Israelites trouble. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, I mean, any slight the Israelites have against any people group, they come from him, okay? They also have their own group of languages and they settle in Shinar. And the third son is Shem. They also have their own group of languages. Shem is where the word Semitic comes from, which then and now is a synonym for being Jewish. Cool, we can just jump right to Abraham now, right? Except that sandwiched between this, another annoying list of people, and where we meet Abraham is a tiny nine verse story about the Tower of Babel, which begins like this. Now the whole world had one language and the same words. Oh really? Because literally not five seconds ago, we just read that there was multiple people groups with multiple different languages. Has any of, have any of you been taught that this is where languages came from? Oh yeah, I see a lot of nods. Me too, me too. Okay, what gives? Didn't the writer know he was contradicting himself? Did the editor fall asleep on the job and be like, oh, you can't, continuity. Does anyone have a continuity model? This is, um, if you don't know what a continuity person is, when you're shooting television, it's the people who make sure that, like, if a character gets punched in the eye in one face, in the next scene, there's a bruise, okay? There's not a Starbucks coffee cup in the back of a Game of Thrones set. (laughs) So is there no continuity person when the Bible was being written? Let's remember that Genesis was put together by Israelites who had been captured by the Babylonians. Does that sound familiar to you? as in the Tower of Babylonians, okay. our tiny nine verse story is only focusing on the existence of one people group who have settled in this plain of Shinar. This post-flood group comes together to build this huge structure to get to the heavens. It's called a ziggurat, looks like a pyramid with stairs. I think I put a picture in the slides. I did put a picture in the slides. <laughs> I'm so good. <laughs> um, Basically, it's a pyramid with stairs for sides and an altar on top, which makes sense because if God is up there and you want to get in touch with God, you have to get higher. Can you take me higher? So they build this thing. And by contrast, Israel's structures did not have any stairs, nothing like this. They waited for God to come down. Okay, so Babylonians had their share of zigrets. They were always doing this. The story is a slam on the Babylonians. It is not a historical count of where all the languages in the world came from. And I think God's response to this story is actually comical, because God's response to this high-rise building that reaches the sky is that God has to come down to even see it. God's like, oh, (laughs) oh, that's what you think is a giant building. Small, petty humans. And then they build this so that they never get dispersed again, so that the the flood is what kind of is on their conscience as a trauma to begin with, and they're never they don't, we're never getting scattered, we're staying together forever, the end. And then they build this, and then they get scattered across. The confusion of the languages is actually a play on words. Okay, so the Hebrew word for confuse is balal, which the writer treats as a pun on the Hebrew word babel, as in the Babylonians. This is not a historical account of where languages come from. It's political satire. So imagine like a comic strip being written about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party and they're like slamming them in like a really snarky fashion. That is what this is. And it's in the Bible. So this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible is that sometimes it's pretty sarcastic. Like, oh, you silly, stupid, arrogant Babylonians to think that you could build a structure to get to God and God can't even see your building. God has to come down to earth to even see what you're trying to do. And then, with zero transition whatsoever, it moves to Abraham. Because the Bible is not into continuity and seamlessness. So we're finally, we're like, oh yes, okay, finally. We're going to get to meet the chosen one of Israel, Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11 has led us up to this point. The world is a mess, but we know there's this one line of people from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem and now to Abraham, and God's going to use it to fix the world. God's moving order. God's moving from chaos to order. Not like in the days of Noah where the whole world's gonna be wiped out, but through a people group. Now we start in chapter 11 with Abraham's pops, Terah, leaving Ur and going to Haran. Yes, that is correct. (laughs) I don't have my notes memorized. And Haran is north of Canaan. What? Who cares? Because Ur is in Babylon and Haran is north of Canaan. And we also learn that Abraham's wife, Sarah, has no kids. And we are going to stay on Abraham through chapter 25. Abraham is happily living his best life in Haran with his family, when out of the blue, abruptly, kind of like we're coming in in on the middle of something, God is like this, in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one that curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. Of course, if you grew up like I did, you know we claim that verse for ourselves. We're like, yes, God is going to bless those who bless me and curse those who curse me, and it's a little bit bit of prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. Or, as my mother likes to say, blab it and grab it. (laughs) <laughs> now, we are not told how a refugee from Babylon would even know who Yahweh is or what Abraham did to deserve this special meeting from God. In fact, later in the Torah in Joshua, we have this like little verse that hints that they're very sketchy because it says, long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates rivers, Babylon, and served other gods. So How how did Abraham know that Yahweh was this particular God? What did Abraham do? What made Terah up and leave Babylon, leave her. We don't know. Welcome to the Bible. It does not answer the questions. Uh, But if we think of the story of Abraham, like the story of Adam, as a narrative about Israel in miniature, it begins to make more sense. Because the nation of Israel would later leave Babylon and go back to Canaan. Israel's first ancestor comes from Babylon just as the people who have been forcibly relocated there are going to leave Babylon and go home to the promised land. It mirrors the story of their chosen ancestor, that God showed himself faithful to Abraham will be faithful to them too. And once we meet Abraham in Genesis 12, the action goes from zero to 60 in like one verse. Hi, Abraham, I'm Yahweh. Uproot your whole life and get out of here. And, of course, generally the sermons on this are, you just got to have faith. If God tells you to do something in your life, well, you know, you got to be like Abraham. You got to claim it, and you got to believe it, and you just got to go. Follow me to an unknown place. You may also notice these themes keep getting repeated. There's this idea of creation showing up again because Abraham's going to be the father of a great nation. He's going to have all these kids. He's going to be fruitful and multiply, right? And his offspring later are said to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, uncountable. Talk about being fruitful and multiplying. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of Christmas presents. I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. It wasn't in my notes, that's why I shouldn't have said it. (laughs) Okay, so every stage of Israel's journey is a new beginning, a new creation. It's a reminder that Israel's whole story is attached to and fulfilling the purposes of the original creation story. Now, within a few verses of getting this miraculous message from God, Abraham finds himself starving to death in the middle of a famine and has to go to Egypt to get some food. And while there, in one of the many upsetting stories in the Bible, Abraham decides to pass his wife off as his sister to save his own neck. Apparently, Sarah is a hot 65-year-old. And Abraham is convinced that if Pharaoh gets a look at Sarah, he will do Anything he possibly can to get his hands on her, including killing Abraham. So Abraham decides to beat Pharaoh to the punch and just hand her over. Great move, Abraham, father of a nation. What is wrong with you? Now, (laughs) this episode actually highlights how Abraham is called by God, and this story mirrors Israel's because Abraham's behavior clearly leaves a lot to be desired. And so does Israel's throughout history, right? Israel's behavior leaves a lot to be desired, and it mimics their struggle with God. Remember, Israel means to struggle. Also, Abraham's trip to Egypt and back mirrors another trip that the Israelites make to Egypt and back. Abraham enters because of a famine to get food and leaves because God is upset that Pharaoh has Abraham's wife At least God is upset about this, even though Abraham doesn't seem to care. And Pharaoh plagues the house of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with your God. Take some money and get out of my kingdom. Which mirrors pretty similarly a whole group of Israelites who go in at the end of Genesis with Joseph because of a famine, and they stay, and then they become Pharaoh's property, and then God plagues Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Take the money and get out of my kingdom. Both Abraham and Moses leave Egypt with a lot of loot. The point is, Yahweh has a long track record of delivering his people, even Abraham, the first Israelite, from a foreign land. So there's that weird story. And then we get to Genesis 15, where Abraham is out of Egypt and basically says, I don't believe you, to God, because God's like, I will make you a great nation. And Abraham's like, well, I don't have any kids. So how's that gonna happen? Abraham tells God, well, you... You haven't given me any children. And I don't know if you noticed, but I'm old. And also, Sarah is really old. And I can't wait around forever. I'm probably going to die soon. So I have to take one of my servants and make him my heir. And God says, you shall do no such thing. I will give you a son of your own, and I will give you a land. The promise is still on. And Abraham is like, I don't believe you. How about you give me some assurance about this? Because... uh, refer to my previous point on I am old mm-hmm. and I'm probably going to die soon. So God is like, okay, fine. I'll give you some assurance. Let's make a contract where I will promise this to you. The biblical term for this is called a covenant, okay? So in the days of old, a long, long time ago, uh, there were no police. There was no like, oh, you broke your contract, so I'm going to sue you now. Like, you, you didn't have that. So what, what would keep you from breaking your word? There was a ceremony basically a self-cursing ceremony where you would take some animals, you'd cut them into pieces, delightful, lay them on the ground in pieces, okay, and then you would walk through them promising your promises. This is what I shall do. And if I don't do it, may I be like these animals, dead, chopped up. What's really interesting here is that God is the only one who walks through making promises. Typically in a contract, you have two parties, right? And especially for, like, a king or a leader and someone serving that person. Like, I the king, I the queen. There weren't very many of those back then, but that's an entirely another sermon. Uh, I promise to protect you. I will not let invaders come destroy your land. You will be safe. That's my promise to you. And you promise to pay me tribute and worship me and do not rebel. This is your promise. Uh, God... Is the only one who does something here abraham does nothing how strange and actually i think this gives us a different light side note on jesus in the new testament instead of thinking of jesus as always like this fulfillment of jesus somehow taking our punishment taking our blame it's the conclusion of God's promise to always be faithful, even to the death, no matter what the Israelites do. No matter what the humans do, God has promised to be faithful and stay. And actually, we see here another preview of the Exodus story, because the Bible likes to have the same themes over and over, so you really get it. God passes through these animals as like a pillar, like basically smoke and fire. And later, when the Israelites get out of Egypt, they have God leading them as a cloud of, smoke by day, and a pillar of fire by night. God promises Abraham, you will have descendants too many to number, and a land flowing with milk and honey, shorthand for a paradise, like Eden. We have a problem though, because in chapter 16, still no kids. Now Sarah takes matters into her own hands, and is like, I have a plan B. Abraham, go to my slave girl Hagar, who is Egyptian, by the way, and have a child with her. We might be shocked by this. Um, It probably seemed pretty logical to Sarah. If you read the promise from God closely, it actually doesn't say anything about who the mother is going to be. It's common practice in the ancient world to use a surrogate mother to ensure you have descendants. This was very common. As Upsetting as we may find it and should find it today since Hagar in no way could have consented to this. Um, Still common practice. And what does God make of this arrangement? It doesn't say. God never steps in and says, Abraham, you should have waited. Too bad I didn't give you all the details of my plan. And also Sarah is so mean to Hagar that she runs away into the desert while pregnant and nearly dies. And guess what happens? God comes to her rescue. He tells her to go back, promises she will have a son and too many descendants to even count. Kind of sounds like the promise God made to Abraham. It looks like God is going to honor whoever Abraham's offspring is, no matter who the mother is. Now Ishmael, the son of Hagar, even gets his own these are the descendants of section in Genesis. They are destined to be a pretty hostile bunch, always picking fights with everyone around them. Um, Another common thing evangelicals like to teach is that, well, Ishmael and Isaac were just destined to be enemies from the beginning, and this is why Jews and Arabs hate each other to this day. No. Mm. Delete that from your mind, okay? That is a bad interpretation of scripture. Um, there does seem to be this tension between the Israelites and the Canaanites who are descended from Ishmael, and this, this little story seems to be some kind of like, well, this is why it happened, because Abraham didn't wait, right? But Ishmael apparently wasn't the promised child. Poor kid. What did he do to deserve that? So 13 more years pass. Ishmael is 14 now, and then when Abraham is 99 years old and covered with mold, God shows up with a new request. Abraham, the deal is on. You're gonna have land, you're gonna have kids, but now I need you to prove yourself to me. And the answer of how you can prove yourself is circumcision. Um, I feel like there's a couple kids in here, so I'm not gonna get too graphic with this, but everyone knows what circumcision is, I assume, (laughs) since we're in a Western country. Uh, Not a new idea, okay? The Israelites did not invent this. It was around for about a thousand years before them. We don't even get an explanation specifically of what this ritual signified to them, other than it seems to serve as some kind of very clear physical mark of religious and ethnic identity. For the men only, because that's, I guess, all who mattered. (sighs) Sometimes you have to be frustrated with the Bible. It's okay. And then the Israelites turn it into like a slur. So anyone who is at odds with them, especially the very annoying neighbors, the Philistines, they refer to as uncircumcised. And apparently that was a pretty big insult (laughs) back in the day. So from Genesis 12 through 18, we've gone through six chapters, right, of Abraham, God's, saying, you're going to get a kid and Abraham doesn't have one. You're going to get a kid, doesn't have one. You're going to get a kid, doesn't have one. Although we do have Ishmael. What is taking so long? Sarah's not getting any younger. Oh, by the way, another frustrating part. Um, This isn't just the Bible, it's just the ancient mindset. Whenever um, a couple was lacking children, it was always the woman's fault because clearly the man was doing his job, so to speak. So if if there were no kids, it had to be the fault of the woman. (sighs) Now, Ishmael's 14. And the point is, All this waiting is to drive home that when this baby arrives, it is completely and only because of God's creative act, just like Israel is. The promised child is finally born in Genesis 21. And we would hope that the birth of this baby that has been promised for so long would make everyone chill out for a little bit. But it doesn't happen. Of course not. We're in the Bible. We just go at breakneck speed. After some years, we come to a story that makes you wonder whether God, Yahweh, is not just a little bit petty and arbitrary because Yahweh tells Abraham, go to Mount Moriah and kill your kid as a sacrifice. Got it? God is testing Abraham. The story makes this very clear, right? Abraham is obedient. He makes all the preparations. He's about to slit the throat of his only child through Sarah, it says it's his only child, right? Poor Ishmael. <laughs> and then the angel of Yahweh shows up at the last second, is like, don't go through with it. God sees that Abraham is obedient, Abraham passes the test, gold star, A plus. Abraham passes, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden. Great ending. Is it? I think it's a little bit unnerving to see how willing Abraham appears to be to sacrifice Isaac. And uh, God, being God, couldn't think of a different kind of test? Come on. This has troubled us for over 2,000 years now. God does not appear to be kidding here, right? For it to be a real test, God has to be serious, and Abraham has to think that God is being serious. There is a real possibility that Abraham goes through with this. So let's look at it from a later point, right? From a point of the Israelite thinking during the Babylonian exile. The Israelites are fundamentally against child sacrifice. That is something their pagan neighbors do. That is not something Israel does. They never do it. It's an abomination to them. It's horrible. It is horrible. They should believe this. However, Israel's God does lay claim to the firstborn of every womb, whether that's a child, a human child, an animal, the firstborn that belongs to God. It says that in Exodus 13. If the firstborn is an animal, you give it over to Yahweh, meaning you sacrifice it. A donkey, however, you can redeem with a lamb, meaning you can present a lamb in place of a donkey so that the donkey lives and God has a substitute. Donkeys were unclean animals and also conveniently could be redeemed because they were really necessary to haul things around. I don't know if you've noticed sheep don't typically haul things, uh, but donkeys do. So we really need them for our agrarian culture. So God obviously has to accept a substitute for them. What about the humans? The firstborn is also redeemed with an animal, okay? But in Numbers 8, we actually see another way that firstborn humans are redeemed. The tribe of Levi of the 12 tribes of Israel is a stand-in for all the firstborn children of Israel. God takes that whole clan for God's self. Not by killing them, but by separating them from the other tribes to run the sacrificial system, to run the church. The Israelite firstborns still belong to God, but they are not sacrificed and God accepts a substitute. And I think the story of Isaac can make a lot more sense with that in the background. As long as we remember that this was written, this wasn't, there wasn't like a person following Abraham around being like, and then Abraham took his child up and was about to kill him. And then this scroll gets passed down for thousands, like not thousands, but hundreds of years. And then the Israelites are like, and that's what happened. Historical account. No, this is being compiled so much later with the Israelites who are right there saying, yes, we know that God is against sacrifice. It's not a surprise to them, right? That God accepts an animal. We know God doesn't go through with it, provides this ram in the bushes, Isaac is spared. And what I wanna like leave you with is that again, this story is a preview of the Israelites in Babylon. God's command to Abraham highlights the incredibly risky nature of trust in Yahweh, because they heard about this promise of Isaac for decades, decades, and then they finally get Isaac, this baby. that should be the mark of security and good times and peace ahead. And then it's threatened in the most counterintuitive and absurd manner possible. Here's what I promised you, now kill it people who shaped the story into its final form, those living in the wake of this horrible national tragedy that was the Babylonian invasion and the burning of their city and the destruction of their temple and the forced deportation of most of their people, they're also examining this incredibly risky nature of trust in Yahweh because it had been decades. They still had no land. It seemed as though they were sacrificed. And this story tells them that God would intervene for them just as God did for Isaac and deliver them from something that seemed like certain death. And God did. Israel is and was and always would be God's child just as Isaac was Abraham's child. Israel was promised and created and Isaac was promised and created and God just as God promised, even though Abraham promised nothing, would show up and be faithful no matter what. Class over. Until next week. We have two more songs. I don't really know how to transition here. I need to get better at this. Maybe I will sometime. Probably not. Uh, you know, this is real life and I'm a real human and I ran out of words to say so now I'm just rambling about nothing. We have two more songs, so if you would like to stand, the band is obviously going to do a much better job um,
2: at having words right now than I do.